This is Eve Lazarus and you're listening to Cold Case Canada, Three Ghost Stories and a Murder. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. This is my last episode for the season, and I've reached out to four amazing storytellers to bring us their own accounts. First up is a murder, and I'm delighted to welcome Will Woods, founder of Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. The story that Will is going to tell you is about Francis Rattenbury, the architect behind some of our province's most iconic buildings. Rattenbury won a design competition at the age of 25 to design the Parliament buildings in Victoria. He went on to design a slew of buildings, including the Empress Hotel, Crystal Gardens and the Nanaimo Courthouse. Here in Vancouver, he also designed the Law Courts on West Georgia Street, which opened in 1911. Why did you choose this particular story? Well, I think it's just such a great tale. I mean, it's got everything. It's got such plot twists, which, of course, if you're telling stories, of course you want to have a a plot that captivates people and takes people on a journey they weren't expecting. The other thing I love about this story is that we're right there, downtown Vancouver, outside what is today the Vancouver Art Gallery, which was the courthouse, and it was built you know, right back in 1906. And the architect was Francis Rattenbury, who was a prestigious architect of the time, designed many buildings in Vancouver and in Victoria and elsewhere in Canada. So it ties in so well, this story, with this monumental landmark that we have in downtown Vancouver. And the tour itself is called the Monumental Scandals Tour. So there's really no better fit for the tour than this tale, which we, we love telling. He was working for a architectural firm in England, and clearly a man of great ambition and was not happy with the opportunities that he was getting in England at the time. And he thought, well, maybe I need to get out into the far reaches of, of course, what was then the British Empire and see if there's more opportunity for me to to show my architectural skills and to build a reputation. And he picked Vancouver. So he came to Vancouver in 1892. He had an office in Gastown, which is the oldest neighbourhood in the city. He was a cunning man. He had the ability to read the political climate and use that to his advantage. And he realized that it was very likely the BC government wanted an architect or architectural firm who were from BC. While his career was taking flight, he had a, a pretty interesting private life as well. Can you talk a bit about that? It was really an uneventful private life. For many years, he was married for about 25 years to a woman called Florence or Florrie. He had two children. And by all accounts, him and his wife did not get along and lived somewhat separate lives. Until one night he was at an event where he was being toasted by some other gentlemen for a commission that he'd won. A woman called Alma Pakenham was playing piano. She had been like a child prodigy at violin and piano, and she actually played at 18 for the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. And she was only 29 years old, and he was 56 by this point, much, much older than her. And 
legend has it, was very taken with this man who was being toasted by everybody at this party, and an affair soon developed. She'd been married to a man who died in the First World War, and then she'd remarried not long afterwards, but that marriage hadn't worked out when she got a divorce, which was quite scandalous in the 1920s. So yeah, she's been twice married, and then her and Rattenby, or Rats as he was called, started their affair. And he soon became really casual about this and would take her to public events and caused a real storm. You know, people did not look favorably on this. He was living in Victoria at the time. His reputation had such weight and heft, I think he felt himself impervious to any sort of rumor mm. mills out there about his relationship with this other woman. And he, he demanded a divorce of his wife, who, who would not divorce him. And so he was furious about this. And they started a kind of tit-for-tat battle where he removed all the furniture from the house. She hid his case of vintage champagne. He stopped paying the electricity bill. And, and eventually it reached the point where he would actually invite Alma over to the house. And Florence would go upstairs to the bedroom and, and sort of, you know, secrete herself away while carried on with his mistress downstairs. Eventually, his wife did agree to a divorce. And his career just fell to pieces. Like Nobody wanted to work with him. At that point, the divorce was such a scandal that it ended his career completely. And him and Alma left Canada and moved to Bournemouth on the south coast of England. He didn't have as much money as, as Alma thought he had. That was a source of strife for them once they moved. I think she'd been sold in this very successful, rich, older man, and it wasn't really the case. Quite a lot of conflict. There were accusations that she herself had some quite severe problems with cocaine and morphine addiction, as well as alcohol. And then... Sitting one day in his drawing room, he found himself bludgeoned to death with a carpenter's mallet by his wife's 18-year-old lover, George Stoner, who was the family chauffeur. So it's taken a bit of a kind of Agatha Christie turn, this story, with uh, the murder in the drawing room with the carpenter's mallet by the chauffeur. Okay. Um, How old was Elmer at this point? She was about 36. She was a lot older than George Stoner. She was old enough to be his mother and it sounds like he was absolutely besotted with her. And her with him had a very, it sounds like a very intense relationship. And it sounds like George Stoner became enraged with jealousy and was a deeply jealous man. And he'd walk past the bedroom of Rats and Alma, and the door had been closed. And he had presumed that they were sharing a moment of married intimacy and becomes in, totally infuriated by this, and had actually assaulted Alma. And she'd pleaded with him, no, no, nothing was going on. We live separate lives, and he knows I live my own life, and he knows about you, and it's all, you know, don't worry about it. But this hadn't been enough for George, and he'd bludgeoned rats to death. They both got tried for murders. When the police came, she sounds like she was really drunk, and she said, I killed him, I did it. And she tried to bribe the police officer on the scene with £10 at the time, um, reacting in a, an, an irrational manner. It sounds like when she'd say that it was her, she didn't know that he was dead because he'd been taken away in an ambulance. And so I think maybe she thought she could protect George. But then once she found out it was a murder, then she said, oh, no, George Stoner did it. It wasn't me. George Stoner did plead not guilty, but he did admit to killing Rattenbury, he said it was cocaine addiction. It had sent him insane, and so he, he was not responsible for his actions. And as you can imagine, that didn't really wash with the jury, and he was found guilty, and Arnold was found not guilty. And he was sentenced to death, wasn't he? 
He was, and this caused a real furore at the time. There was a lot of sympathy for him among the British public where people felt like this teenage boy had been bewitched by an older woman and he himself had serious addiction. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't intend to kill Rattenbury. So a petition started on the South Coast that quickly spread across the country. Almost 350,000 people signed that petition to ask for his sentence to be, I think the word commuted from hanging to life in prison. But at this time, Elmer only knew that he was going to get the death sentence, that he was going to hang. That's right. It shows the sort of depth of trauma that was going on in these relationships. Rattenbury had assaulted Elmer himself not long before he was killed. George Stone had assaulted Alma, so she was in these relationships with two men who'd been sort of physically abusive towards her. Rattenbury was a heavy, heavy drinker and was drinking, going on a bottle of whiskey a night. She had drink and drug problems. George Stone had a cocaine addiction. Rattenbury had talked about suicide. There was a lot of real mental health difficulties among those three people. And once he'd been found guilty and sentenced to hang, and she was, was released as not guilty. She took a dagger, and she stabbed herself several times and then fell into a river. Passerby tried to rescue her, but by the time the ambulance came and everything, she was dead. She was probably suffering from, from tremendous guilt about the fate that she thought Stoner would have with him suffering uh, the death penalty. In the end, it got overturned, didn't it? Yeah, it did. I think he served about seven years. Uh, Stoner, which is a long way short of life, of course. And mm. then when he was released, he went on to fight in the Second World War, and then moved back to Bournemouth and lived the rest of his life there. Thank you, Will. And if you live in Vancouver or are visiting, do check out Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. Apart from the Monumental Scandals Tour that just launched this year, tours include the Dark Secrets of Stanley Park, the Lost Souls of Gastown, which is perfect to take around Halloween, and there's also the Really Gay History Tour. Don't forget to use a promo code COLDCASE when you book and get 15% off. That's all at ForbiddenVancouver.com. My next guest is Captain Ryan Cameron. Ryan has notched up 27 years of service with the Vancouver Fire Department and he's going to tell us his personal experiences in Haunted Fire Hall Number 19 in West Point Grey. Ryan, when did you first work at Number 19? So I started in 1996, and I was posted to Number 19 in 2000, 2001. So I did a two-year tour there. Had you heard that it was haunted before you went there? No. You notice things. You always have that feeling somebody's there, but they're not there. It's a one-piece hall. There's four of us. And you know who's around where and what. And you just felt like somebody's watching you. Or the one time we were having lunch, and there's that sound of someone sliding down the pole. And there's the four of us are sitting right across from each other, just talking, and, and that sound. And you can't get into a fire hall because the doors are buzzed, so... If, Somebody opens the door, there's a buzzer that goes off. So we knew nobody was in the hall. And we all kind of got up and looked because the kitchen is just off the apparatus bay. And we look out, and there's nobody there. But there was somebody that slid down the pole. And then you always get middle of the night, three in the morning, doors right upstairs, just storage rooms. And there's no windows or anything. And the door is just slammed. Woke everybody up. And it was like, 
okay, what's going on? You, you don't really know, and, and then you start talking to the rest of the crews. And then it's been going on for years. People have seen faces. There's been the bouncing ping pong ball. There's been... Oh, tell me about the bouncing times. ping pong ball. I, same thing. You're sitting in the kitchen at lunch, and the ping pong ball starts bouncing across the front of the door and the window, and you're like, all right, <laughs> nobody in the hall. There's a ping pong table there, but just little things. People have seen faces. Um, sometimes before an alarm comes in, you're woken up from, I think it's Bill, and you're like, you wake up and, oh, and then the tones go. And then, so he's giving you that little, hey, you got to get up or you got to go to work. And I started doing my own research. And that's when I came across Bill Wooten, who died in 43. They were going to an alarm call in November of 1943. And then they were responding to uh, 7th and Alma. And it, they collided with a Vancouver police car that was going to the same box alarm. And unfortunately, Bill was thrown from the truck because they rode the tailboards back then. And he hit his head on a rock garden and he was killed. It was a tragic accident. And just being at 19, it was, you know, you always wondered, is it Bill? And then you started having like the chills. You'd go through the cold space in the stairwell that led up to the upstairs portion of the hall. So that fire hall was built on the same site as the original number 19. So original number 19 was opened in 1922, and then it was part of the Point Grey Fire Department at the time. And then in 29, it, it amalgamated, and it became Vancouver Fire Department number 19, and until 1979. And then they rebuilt the hall on the same site as we see it today. Had you heard any ghost stories from the original hall? Talked to some of the old timers that were there as young guys. And I remember my captain at the time when I was just kind of talking about things. And why is it cold in that stairwell there? And I remember the captain, there were a different breed of guys back then. They didn't talk about this kind of stuff. And he goes, well, you know, when I was a young guy, we didn't like to go into the basement at this hall. <laughs> and I'm like, why? Well, it was just kind of weird. And it, it guess it carried on. So on the same building, we have, you know, the cold spots. Is it, Bill a calm presence or is he scary? Or what no, he doesn't. If something's going on, the, the crews will hit. Bill, that's enough, right? Like, you'll just talk to him. I think he appreciates that. Sometimes it's funny with you'll get the new guys coming in and the crews that have been there a while. I've heard stories where they'll just have one of those light clickers and they'll play a game with the new guy because it's never been any lights going on and off. So it's kind of one of those things where the guys kind of mess with and <laughs> a new firefighter coming in and, oh, that's Bill. I think Bill appreciates the fun. Where do you see him? Does he appear in all sorts of places? There's a back storage room. There always seems to be a shadow on a mezzanine, you know, late at night, back from a call and you're just kind of watching TV. There's a mezzanine behind in the sitting room where the TV is and you always feel like there's something there and you turn and look and it's, is that a shadow or it's different. You feel him, but he's harmless. Ryan, has anyone refused to work there? The story is there was a new captain and he was in the bedroom and he just felt the presence. And then he said the bed started shaking and I'm like, yeah, okay. So he just did one shift and said, you got to get me out of here. <laughs> okay. 
I've been back there as a captain, so it was interesting. Uh, I in that same room, same bed, and I'm like, "Hey, Bill," <laughs> just kind of to myself. I didn't experience anything, but that was a once for this particular member. And I have some great news for Vancouver listeners. Those of you who live in the Lower Mainland and love jewellery and design will be excited to know that Erin Haken has opened a studio in Vancouver. Erin brings her degree in art history and studies in jewellery making together with her love of antique styling to create really unique handcrafted pieces. Go to erinhaken.com, that's E-R-I-N-H-A-K-I-N.com and receive 15% off your order when you use the code COLDCASE. My next guest is Amanda Quill, and she has lived quite comfortably in several haunted houses over the years. My name is Amanda Quill, and I am a paranormal investigator. Now, what does that mean, Amanda? I go into locations that people are feeling uncomfortable or want a little bit more history on when it comes to any activity or reported activity in their homes or business places, buildings. We've investigated everything from cinemas, theaters, to restaurants and in um, buses even. So it's wide-ranging. It's anything that's a little bit abnormal that we can't explain. They call people like us in. So living in a haunted house isn't really a scary proposition to you then? No. In fact, um, I welcome it. I, I, I live in one now. You're going to tell us about 1329 East 12th. So tell me a bit about the house and how you came to live there. Well, that house is a beautiful character home, and I moved into it in 2001 with my son in the summer. Now, this home was built in 1912. I couldn't believe the amount of space we were getting. It was three bedrooms, backyard. They knew who I was and what I did, and they knew that I was a paranormal investigator. So they said, this probably won't bother you, but this house is haunted. And, uh, of course, the paranormal investigator and me yeah. <laughs> I thought it was a great catch, although the mother in me kind of was questioning it. So I did ask, what is the reported activity in this home? And does it happen quite often? Is it overwhelming? And how's the energy? I did do a tour of the house and didn't really pick up on anything myself. But what I was told that there was three spirits that were seen quite regularly and possibly more. One was the ghost of a cat. And you would see it out the corner of your eye you would think that a neighborhood cat got in your house. Another one was a male in his 30s, which I found quite interesting because they were very specific about that he was in his 30s. Now, there was a rumor that he had actually passed away in the house, that he actually died of an overdose quite a few years earlier. But at the same time, I didn't know if that was accurate too, because a lot of times ghosts, when they appear, they appear in their 30s. It's kind of like the prime of our lives. So, a lot of times when ghosts come back, you'll see them much younger than they were when they passed away. And the third one was the ghost of a small girl. And she appeared to be wearing a frilly dress to everyone. She was quite dressed up and, and fancy looking. I thought that this small girl would be what we call a residual haunt. So something that's like a skip in a record or an echo of the past. So something that was appearing to us that wasn't really there for whatever reason. She's still appearing as a small girl. 
So we took the house, we moved in, and I can honestly say for the first few months of living there, there was nothing. I didn't experience anything. I didn't see anything. My son didn't say anything. To be clear, I didn't talk to Nathan about ghosts. How old was he back then? Nathan would have been seven years old when we moved in. I didn't want him to have, like, there's ghosts in my house or reason to have any insecurity in his own home. I really thought it was important to, you know, let his his imagination be for fun and play, not worried about who's down lurking at the end of a corridor, right? This is 2001, and with 9-11 happening, it really got to my son. It was really hard for him. So after that happened, he was very emotional. There was heightened energy in our house already. He was scared. There was a sense of urgency and anxiety in our house. And that was probably around the time he started coming up from playing downstairs as I'm getting his breakfast ready and being really upset at the table and really angry. And I questioned him, and he's like, it's that little girl. I'm just done with her. So I just didn't act like anything was wrong. And I said, what little girl? He said, the little girl that sits downstairs and she stares in my room and she won't play with me. And I told her what my name is and I told her she could play and I gave her toys and she won't play. She just sits there. And I said, well, maybe just leave a toy for her and then she'll play with it. She's she's probably just shy. He's like, oh, okay. Ate a cereal, went to school. No problem. And this continued to happen for about three or four months, and it wasn't every morning. It was every third week he'd come up and get increasingly angry because she just would sit there. And sometimes he said she would swing her legs, and sometimes she wouldn't. She would just sit there. Did he understand she was a ghost? No. He just thought she was a rude little girl that came over and wouldn't play with him. So he said to me, Mama, I don't want her coming anymore. Like, she's rude, and I don't like her. I don't want her coming anymore. So in the paranormal, uh, one of the things that we do really teach people, you know, coach them along is taking back their house, taking back their space. You make the rules in your house. And if they're not willing to follow them, they can leave. It really works. And so without mentioning anything about our haunted house, I said to him, well, Nathan, next time you see her, you tell her that if she's not going to talk to you and she's not going to play then she can leave and that you don't want to play with her anymore. And you don't want to see her here anymore. This is your house. So this is, these are your mornings. This is your playtime. You take that back. You tell her. And he said, okay, I swear to goodness, Eve, he never mentioned her again. So I don't know when, where, or how he did it, but he obviously went down and told her the next time that he saw her. And had you seen or her now? yourself? Or was it just nice that- I never saw her. I saw the cat. So I would see a cat like running around the corner and darting down the stairs, really dark gray, charcoal colored cat. So I just got used to the cat being around and that was fine. The other one was the male in his 30s. For as long as I have been doing paranormal investigation, I'd never until this house seen a close to a full body apparition in my life. And at the back of the house, there is a little porch off of the kitchen and I had a little mini garden there and I would grow herbs and one morning I'm out there watering all my plants and there was a staircase that went down along the side of the house and at the bottom of the staircase there was a a door that came out of our basement and just out of the corner of my eyes I saw someone walking out of that door and I turned and I looked and there was this guy 
and I can tell you what he was wearing. I could tell you how long his hair was. And he held his hands up as if he was shielding the wind to light a cigarette and even made the actions with his hands to light a cigarette. And, and at that point, it was like something interrupted him. And he turned around and he looked up the stairs right at me. And we locked eyes and we both were startled. He took one step and there was nothing below his knees and he just vanished. I was just absolutely blown away. Oh my God, I would have run blown screaming away. from the house. I sat there for the rest of the day hoping he would come back. How long did you end up living there? We lived there a year, a little bit over the year. And the reason I moved out was not because of any of the activity. I moved out because the cost of heating it was absolutely crazy for a single mm-hmm. mother. And, and I actually got into a housing co-op, so I jumped at a chance. So I went from a very rundown old character home into a beautiful new townhouse. <laughs> My last guest is Jim Wolfe, who kindly interrupted his holiday to chat with me on the podcast. Jim is a former planner with the city of Burnaby and a long-time New Westminster resident. Before I turn it over to Jim, I thought I'd give you a bit of background on Irving House in New Westminster. It's also great because not only is it one of the oldest houses in Vancouver's Lower Mainland, you can actually go and visit it and experience the ghosts yourself. Irving House is a Gothic revival building that looks out over the Fraser River. The whole house feels spooky. The wallpaper and the carpets in the two front parlours are original. The furniture, the clothes and the gadgets are all authentic to the period. The house hasn't left the 1860s when Captain John Irving had it built for his family and it feels like the family has just stepped out for a moment. Irving was a very successful riverboat captain who unfortunately caught pneumonia and died in his bed in 1872. His son John, then just 17, took over the family business, became quite rich and influential, and eventually moved to Victoria. There is even a park named after him there. John's sister Mary married Thomas Briggs, and they bought the house and raised their nine children there. Two of the unmarried daughters lived in the house until 1950, when it was sold to the city for $5,000 and made into a museum. My name is Jim Wolf, and I used to be a former curatorial assistant at Irving House in New Westminster. When was that, Jim? This was back in about 1990, when I was in my early 20s, <laughs> and I just got my first job out of university. When did you first hear it was haunted? Nobody told me it was haunted, and that was my introduction to the place, was finding out that it was haunted. Nothing in the house had ever been catalogued before, and so we had this crazy deadline to go through every room in the house and catalog everything. It was a very exciting job, but it meant that you had to literally pull everything apart in every room and put a number on it, describe it, measure it, and it was a fairly tedious task, but it got me into every single room and nook and cranny. And so my job was to arrive early every morning and I'd grab my stuff and up into the empty house I would go to get to the ghost stories. This one morning, I arrived all by myself. So I enthusiastically ran up to the next room that I was going to do, which so happened to be what's called John's room, which is a bedroom upstairs on the second floor. 
and I was sitting on the floor, and that's when it happened. And what happened was not really that significant, but I'll never forget it. All of a sudden, I just knew there was something there. There was something right behind me. And if you've ever had that feeling of being frozen in fear, that's exactly what happened to me. Everything, every part of my body just seized up. And I sat there, and I knew it was behind me. And I just thought, if I look behind me, I'm going to see it. And it's going to do something. And so with every fiber of my being, I somehow unlocked my limbs and I dashed for the door and I ran out of that house like a bat out of hell. And I got out the back door. And as I exited the building, I started to hyperventilate. It was such a frightening experience. And I can't explain what it was except that I knew it was there. And when the curator saw my face, she said, what's happened? What's wrong? And I said, I don't know. She said, it happened, didn't it? And I said, what? You saw the ghost. And I said, no, I think I kind of felt the ghost. And then she started to relate all the stories that have been behind Irving House. And it started me on this wonderful quest to collect all the stories that anybody has ever told about um, Irving House and his ghost. It definitely is very original, and I think it has a peculiar smell inside it and a peculiar feeling. I think the house just has a real spirit to it, and some of my best stories were collected from the guides. Sometimes you had a big bus tour show up, and one of my favorite stories was they opened the front door to a bus tour, and a whole group of people filed in and into the front room, and all of a sudden, one woman just started to scream her head off and she almost collapsed in the room and so people picked her up and she says I need to get out of here I need to get out of here they took her out front and they couldn't calm her down until finally she said I can't go back in there whatever is in there is is so frightening she was just completely freaked out and of course nobody wanted to go on the tour (laughs) after that so who do you think's haunting is it John I mean I think the thing is about a house like this you get so many different stories that it's hard to kind of settle on who could it be, right? I mean, definitely Captain Irving died in the house. You had both Mary and William Briggs, the captain's daughter and her husband. They both passed away in the house. So there have been deaths in the house and people that were very connected to the building. When I put them all together, I can say that there really is no one focus of where things happen or how they happen. They just seem to swirl around the house in the most mysterious way. I can tell you a few of the stories that I've heard over the years. They're all so much fun. One of the great ones was there used to be right next door to Irving House, there was an old hospital called St. Mary's Hospital. And this was in the 1970s. Two nurses came over in the middle of the night because they had seen young women in night dresses on the porches of Irving House, and they could not figure out what they were doing there. They thought some of the occupants of the hospital had gotten away and were playing next door in in the garden, but they couldn't find them after they had spotted them from an upper story of the hospital. And so the next day they came and they said, who are the women that are living in the house and are they allowed to be out on the balconies in their night dresses? And of course, the curator is not knowing what she's talking about. The other weird thing about Irving House, especially in those early days, was that 
because the house was a historic center, it needed to be protected. Uh, they didn't have any security systems like we had today. So there had to be essentially a night watchman and a caretaker living in the house. And so there was a basement suite where the curator used to live. In fact, the first curator of Irving House, his name was Albert Walker, and he had a lovely wife that was also the hostess for the house called Queenie. They were there from, I think, about 1960 until about 1972, and they often had their grandchildren stay with them. And one of my favorite stories is one of the granddaughters was with Queenie Walker while she was opening up the house and raising the blinds for the, the visitors for the day. And as she walked by John's room, she saw the old quilts and the bed clothes on the bed were all torn asunder. And she said to her granddaughter, what happened? And the granddaughter said, well, that man there did that. Then Queenie stopped for a moment and said, no, you're telling Sid, there is no man there. Do not play in the bed. Do not to do that ever again. And so sure enough, she cleaned up all the bed clothes, put them all right, and hauled her granddaughter down the hallway to keep her away from doing it again. And as they were exiting the second floor, the granddaughter said, well, there he is again. And she turned, and sure enough, all the bedclothes on the bed that she just straightened were all torn asunder in John's room. And, of course, this is the room where I had my ghostly experience. The guides themselves would have the most curious tales. And then I remember this guide, Joan, telling me that she was sitting in the house on one of these really quiet afternoons, and she thinks she might have nodded off while she's sitting at her station. And as she came about, she said she smelled this awful smell, like gardenias or some flower, and she said it was just overpowering. She was gasping for breath. So she opened up the front door to get the smell away from her, and then as she opened the front door, she could hear somebody walking upstairs. And then she was like, oh my gosh, I've fallen asleep, and somebody has come into the house and is upstairs. And so she starts calling upstairs. I'm sorry, we're closed now. You're going to have to come downstairs. We're about to close up. And yet the footsteps continued and she could hear them pacing above her. But whoever it was would not reveal themselves. So there was a security call button and she basically freaked out, got the curator up there. And the curator said, where are they? And they said, they're right above us. They're in the upper hallway. So he went running up the stairs to see who it was, calling as he went. And as he got to the top of the stairs, somebody pushed him out of the way, and he almost fell down the stairs. He was a big guy, but they both looked at each other and said, who is that? And of course, there was nobody there. Before you started work at Irving House, did you believe in ghosts? No, never. I had no experience to believe in them. That's why whatever I experienced was so unusual, because it happened so instantaneously that I just, I just knew. I just knew it was there. I can't explain it, but I think when people have these experiences happen to them, they're not going to look for the experience. The experience finds them. Another great story of somebody experiencing them was another caretaker of Irving House had to leave for a long weekend and got his firefighter buddy to stay in the suite below the house. And he basically said, okay, well, you know, it's usually quiet. You don't have to do anything. Gave him all the numbers to call. But the firefighter felt it was his duty to do the rounds. So while he's staying in the suite, he could hear what he thought was somebody walking on the porches around the house. And so big burly guy, he said, I'm, I'm going to go up there and see what this is about. He's not going to call the new West cops and wait for them. So up he goes up the back stairs out onto the porches. 
and he doesn't see anything, but he hears the footsteps. And as he walks by the library window, something catches his attention, and he can see that there's a blue light coming from the house where there shouldn't be a blue light. And he starts to lean into the window to say, what is that? And as he leans into the window and cuts his hands to shield his eyes so he can see through the glare at what this was, all of a sudden, this little blue orb that is floating in the hallway comes rushing at him towards the glass. And when it hits the glass, it's a face screaming at him. And he doubles back, falls off this porch. He almost fell six feet off the veranda. And he hit the ground, and then he kept running. He ran right over to St. Mary's Hospital. They called 911 because they thought there was somebody in the house. The cops arrived. They turned off the alarm. They checked everything. But, of course, there was nothing there. But this guy, this six-foot-tall, burly firefighter, was convinced <laughs> that something was in that house, and that, that bastard had scared the shit out of him. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like more information on the stories in this episode or on other cold cases, please go to my website, evelazarus.com. You can also join us on the Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada. And if you haven't already, don't forget to pick up a copy of my book, Cold Case BC, the stories behind the province's most intriguing murder and missing persons cases. You can find it either online at your library or through your favourite bookstore.